going to turn our attention to a book, and, and uh, we, we studied the book of James, the New Testament book of James, this fall, and we're doing a few different sermons for Advent. And so this morning we're in Numbers chapter 24, and if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow from the bulletin. Numbers chapter 24, we're going to pick up in the second part of verse 14. I know a lot of you have read the Harry Potter books, and or at least seen most of the movies by now, so I don't think this will be any big spoiler what I'm about to say, and I, and I reviewed this too with my sons to make sure I, they kind of fact-checked me on some of these things. Got to have research teams, but there's a, there's a professor at the, the wizardry school, Hogwarts, named Professor Trelawney. And Professor Trelawney is the professor of divination. And so she teaches stuff like, uh, stuff like how to read a crystal ball or how to read the tea leaves or omens and, and things like that. And if you've seen the movie, she's played by Emma Thompson. I think it's Emma Thompson. Unbelievably. But she's this, she's this super dramatic, weird, kooky kind of person uh, on the faculty at Hogwarts. Now, on the one hand, you get the feeling that the students and the other faculty don't quite know what to do with her. She is quirky. She, she's kooky. But the reason, apparently, that uh, Dumbledore hired her to be a professor at Hogwarts is because of something that happened in 1980. In 1980, Professor Dumbledore was, uh, was meeting with her. She wanted to work at Hogwarts. He was probably disinclined. And while they were talking, she went into a trance. And she said this, The one with the power to vanquish the Dark Lord approaches. I hope no visitors walk in just right, right this <laughs> exact. husband turns to his wife, yeah, let's keep looking at other churches. <laughs> the one with the power to vanquish the dark Lord approaches. Born to those who have thrice defied him. Born as the seven month, seventh month dies. And the dark Lord will mark him as his equal. But he will have power the dark Lord knows not. It's a prophecy of Harry's birth. And it's right on. And so, uh, because of that, and, and uh, even to protect her, Dumbledore hires her. And there's even an episode where Harry is up in her class, and uh, she's talking with him, and she breaks into a trance, and she talks about these massive things that are going on that no one else knows, this, you know, this, this struggle between good and evil. And it's correct. So she's both flaky and quirky, and people don't take her seriously, and then she speaks accurately about this massive struggle. Numbers chapter 24. Uh, let me give you the background and, and why I even use that example. This comes... This is, Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. So you're coming after Exodus. That means God's people, they were in slavery in Egypt. They've been let out. They're no longer slaves. But they're still in the wilderness. We're not to Deuteronomy yet, where they get right to the river and they kind of recap everything, and then Joshua, they go into the promised land. 
So they're no longer slaves. They're in the wilderness. And something interesting has been happening as this narrative unfolds that this group of ex-slaves, and there's a lot of them, are sort of turning in, and this is to everyone's surprise, they're turning into kind of a formidable army. Because you would not think that a a ragtag group of ex-slaves would be able to wipe out standing armies. They don't walk out with... Uh, you know, military drills and plans in mind and weapons, and they are starting to defeat every enemy that opposes them, and their reputation precedes them. Well, they come to the area where the Moabites live, and the Moabites, just all through the Old Testament, is this long, long-term enemies of God's people. So they come to where the Moabites live. The king of Moab is a guy named Balak, or Balak. And, again, their reputation precedes them. And he knows about this guy that's kind of like a Professor Trelawney. And his name is Balaam. And you can actually hire this guy to curse people. And his reputation is, if he blesses somebody, they're blessed. If he curses somebody, they're cursed. And so the plan is, hire Balaam. He sends men like kind of an entourage to go get him, bring him back. As you read this narrative, it starts in chapter 22, you get the feeling, this took a lot of money. He's very invested in this. Brings Balaam in, and the plan is, curse the nation of Israel so that they're off kilter, and then when we fight, we'll overcome them, and, and that's the advantage that we need. Well, they bring Balaam in, and he sees Israel... And every time that he's been hired to pronounce a curse on Israel, he ends up speaking blessing about it. How great it is. How unstoppable they are. How God blesses them. And it's driving Balak up the wall. Because at great expense, he brought him in to curse Israel. Well, this is really the last oracle. And again, what was the job? The job is... There's this big ragtag army heading our way, and they've got an extremely high success rate, and I don't want to be the next statistic. Curse them. And it is as if he goes into a trance and speaks about things that are so much more massive than that setting or that nation or even that time. And I'm going to say this. Literally, he this is around 1,500 years before Christ give or take. He speaks about things that every person in this room that we are going to need on our deathbed. And one day we'll be there. Numbers chapter 24, beginning in verse 14, the second part. Balaam is speaking to the king of Moab and he says, Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. 
Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, if, if the Lord Jesus could quote from memory your word and apply it to himself and to all those around him that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth, then we need to hear that. And we need these words. They're, they're unusual words to us. They're unusual words to think about in Advent. But we need every word that proceeds from your mouth. So use this for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's a practice in, in a Christian family sometimes, or just Christians in, in, in general, uh, family or not, to, uh, to do Advent readings during this time of year. And, you know, again, none of this is mandated. It's you're free to do this or not do it whenever you choose. But... Sometimes the way it works is maybe start December 5th and you'll have 25 readings that take you till Christmas Day. And, it's, uh, and there's no set list, but there's passages that people have culled from the Old and the New Testament that sort of help you understand the big story of the Bible. And it gets at actually what, what Tim said, the, the great question, why did God become a man? We call that the incarnation and that's what we think about at Christmas, right? Well, there's one that I've seen in Advent lists. I don't think the Haybigs have ever made a, a clean run of 25 days without missing. But, uh, you know, we've, we've taken swings at it. And there's a reading that comes up sometimes, and it's from this passage. And it's only one part of one verse. It's from verse 17, and it's just the part that says, "...a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel." And usually that's the only part that's cited, because if you know, if you keep reading, the next thing is about someone's forehead being crushed. And that's just kind of not the Christmas feeling, if you think about it. But I, I know that sometimes just, uh, I mean, even as a pastor, and uh, I've, I've, I've read through that book before, that I just, it, it doesn't land the way other passages land. You know, one of, the, one of the Advent readings that always comes up is what I preached on last Sunday. Isaiah 9, unto us a son is born, unto us a son is given, his name will be wonderful counselor, mighty God. That one is, that, you know, that one fits. You, that one is a great Advent reading, and it fits. But that verse, when you just, just even pull the camera back a little bit, you go, I, is this, is, should this be an Advent reading? I mean, is, it, is this, do we know this is talking about what we say it's talking about? Or did somebody somewhere say, okay, look, we got the, we got the wise men coming in, they find a star, they're looking for a king, we need an Old Testament passage with a star and a king, there's one in Numbers 24, yank it out. And interestingly, and I didn't know this until getting ready for this sermon, not only did the early church, and when I say the early church, I don't mean the 1700s. I mean like, you know, the 200s. Not only did they see this passage in Numbers 24 and say, that is talking about the Messiah. Long ago, that was talking about the Messiah. But on top of that, even older Judaism looked at, of course... These are the books of Moses. They pour over those books. They saw this passage in Numbers 24. I'm going to read you something in a little bit that demonstrates this. Early Judaism saw what Balaam said in this oracle and said, that has to be speaking 
about the Messiah. That Balaam is seeing the Messiah. So here's what I want to look at. First off, what does he see? What does Balaam see in this oracle? Second, who is it? Now, I've already kind of answered that question, but I want, to, I want to try to be fair about do we know that's the case? What does Balaam see? Who is he seeing? How does that help us? What does it show us? All right, so first off, what does Balaam see? What, what is he seeing from way, 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 way off? Well, again, uh, the, so much of this I did not know until even studying for this, this morning. Balaam saw something that two other figures in the books of Moses saw. There's there's an Old Testament scholar named Selhammer. And he made this observation. This is one of those things that I don't think I ever would have observed. You've got to do a lot of study to pick up on something like this. He said, in the books of Moses, there's three times where the same thing happens. Almost out of the blue where you've got a central figure, and all of a sudden the central figure will say to whoever they're with, come, come here, I need to tell you something. And then this figure will speak about the latter days. Moses does it. Jacob does it. That's Abraham's grandson. And Balaam does it. Now, the latter days is a really interesting phrase. Because it's, it's, it's so simple that you can fly past it when you're reading it. But that, fr- that Hebrew phrase, the longer you go in the Old Testament, it almost becomes a technical term. And it's a technical term that means not just, yeah, you know, a hundred years from now, the latter days. It means this. When history reaches its goal, When the culmination of history comes, now any devout Jew would understand that as being what? When Messiah shows up. That's the latter days. And by the way, that phrase, that technical term is not just in the Old Testament, it's picked up in the New Testament as well. Three different times in the books of Moses, way before Jesus comes, a figure will just kind of say, everybody stop. Come. Let me tell you what's going to happen in the latter days. This is one of those passages. What, so Balaam is a seer. That's an old name for a prophet. He, he sees, he talks about his vision, what, he, what God shows him in his vision. He says, I see him way off. What is he seeing? He says, well, there's a him. He talks about Israel as a nation, but he says there's a he and there's a him. Who is the he and the him? He's the star. He's a star from that group of people, the nation of Israel. He's descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, that's not just a neat kind of metaphor. That's an old metaphor for a king. You see that elsewhere in the Old Testament. A star is a king. And he talks about he's not just a star. He's a scepter. He's somebody who's going to exercise dominion. So from way off, he sees a king. All right, what is this king going to do? This king is going to dispatch these longtime enemies of God's people. And there's several people that are mentioned there, but, and, and some of those are just different names for the same group. The two biggies that show up there are Moab and Edom. And those names are worth knowing, because if you read in the Bible, they're going to come up. Moab and Edom. This king, this 
this one who wields the scepter, this one who's going to exercise dominion, the star, he's going to dispatch, Balak, your people. He's going to dispatch Moab and Edom, all right? That's what he sees. Who is he talking about? Now, some people have said that prophecy was fulfilled by King David. Because King David was a warrior king. He was the guy that wanted to build the temple, and God said, Nope, you may not build the temple. Your son's going to build the temple. He'll be a man of peace. But you've got blood all over your hands. You have been a king who was a man of war. That was your calling. So when you think about David, don't think about like kind of that shepherd boy with the harp, you know, on the hill. It's kind of more of a brave heart guy just covered with who knows what. A man of war. Well, he warred against Moab. And he warred against Edom. And he met with some success. So some people have said, well, look, it's talking about a descendant of Israel. It's talking about somebody who's a king, who has a scepter. It's talking about somebody who wars against Moab and Edom. It's talking about David. It's talking about King David. But there's a problem. The problem is that his victory was temporary. And it's kind of like, a, did you ever play whack-a-mole? You know, like in, do you know the game I'm talking about where you've got the tubes and a cord and a mallet? And, and out of these tubes pop these uh, plastic moles. Any child immediately understands the rules of this game. And it's that, you know, as the moles come up, you, you slam them down, and then, you know, others are coming up, and just how fast can you do it? But Moab and Edom were kind of like whack-a-mole. Is every t- and Philistines were, and other enemies of God. You, you would dispatch them, you would beat them, you would, you would set them back, and then someone else crops up. And so even after David, Moab and Edom keep doing that. And this is the amazing thing, is that if you read after David in the later prophets... Prophecies keep coming up about there's going to be this final, ultimate defeat of Moab. There's going to be a final, ultimate defeat of Edom and Philistines and Assyrians, these enemies of God's people. We've had, we've had tastes of it. But somebody's going to come and they're just going to close the book on this animosity. And again, it was understood that the only one who could fulfill that had to be whom? Had to be the Messiah. Now, with that in mind, I I, I don't want to get all luxury and teachy on you, but I, I want you to hear this. This is from an early Jewish writing. This is not in the Bible. What I'm reading you is not from the Bible. It's an early Jewish writing called the Testament of Levi. And listen to this. It refers to Numbers 24 to describe what the Messiah is going to be like. It says this. Then will the Lord raise up to the priesthood a new priest to whom all the words of the Lord shall be revealed and he shall execute a judgment of truth upon the earth in the fullness of days. You get that? In the latter days. And his star shall arise in heaven as a king shedding forth the light of knowledge in the sunshine of day. And he shall be magnified in the world until his ascension. And he shall open the gates of paradise and shall remove the threatening sword against Adam. This king is going to come in the anger of God directed against Adam for his rebellion and all of Adam's descendants. He's going to take that sword away. And he shall give to his saints to eat from the tree of life. That was an early Jewish writing. 
the Testament of Levi. You get to the end of the New Testament, and when I say the end of the New Testament, I don't mean just the last book, the last chapter of the last book, Revelation 22, almost the last verses. And Jesus is saying these last statements to the church, and what does He say? He says, I am the root and the offspring of David. I am the bright morning star. And what is He saying? I am the fulfillment of Balaam's oracle. When Balaam said, I'm seeing someone from far, far, far away, he's not near, Jesus is saying, He saw me. Now, how does that help us? How, how, how does that help us? And a couple of things to think about. One is this. Look up in verse 14. How did Balaam start out? He did that thing that happens three times. Moses does this. Jacob does this. Balaam. Whoever's around, he says, come. I've got to tell you something. And he says, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. Is that true? Because we just got through saying the Israelites... They couldn't do it. They couldn't defeat Moab and Edom. He says, in the latter days, here's what these people are going to do to your people. And then look down at verse, verse 18. It says that Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies shall be dispossessed. And then he says this, Israel is doing valiantly. Were they? Because the prophecy is that this, this, this man, this star, this scepter, he's going to be the one who does it. Now, what is that pushing us to understand? Balaam is looking from way, way, way off, and here's what he's seeing. The one who holds the scepter is going to do it, and Israel's going to get credit for it. The one who's the king is going to do the work, and Israel's going to be regarded as if it did the work. That is an incredibly important biblical truth. Because the gospel is not, hey, let's go out of here, let's be more committed than we've ever been before, and let's all be sold out for Christ. And I say that saying, I want to be sold out for Christ. And I would want for any of us to be sold out for Christ. Not so we can win an argument or be showboaty, but because He deserves it. But the reality is, the gospel is not us being sold out for Christ. The gospel is that God was sold out for us. And the ultimate manifestation of that is that He becomes man. Why does God become man? Because we could not do it. Any of our enemies, any of our problems, our problems outside or inside... God becomes man and He lives. He keeps the law and the prophets perfectly for His whole life as a child, as an adult. And He absorbs the punishment that we deserve. And here's here's the amazing thing. He absorbs the punishment because He is treated as if He did our sins. We are brought, if we believe... We are brought into the new heavens and the new earth. We taste of the fruit of the tree of life, which He deserves to eat and we don't. Because why? Because He does the work and we're treated as if we did it. That is as important a biblical reality as you'll ever know. 
The second one is this, though. The only one who can completely overcome the enemies of God's people is the star, is the king. And this, this is also like whack-a-mole. You know, you think about, what does Paul say are our enemies? Are we, are we waging war now against the Moabites, Edomites, Philistines? Nor is there any nation that all Christians are saying, yes, we must take up arms and dispatch that nation in the name of God. There is no nation like that. That is not how the world works anymore. So what does Paul say? Our enemies are not flesh and blood. We're not warring against flesh and blood. The enemies, as we've said, are the unholy trinity. The world, not planet Earth, but just the global system of rebelling against God. The global system of saying, God, I don't need you. I have my own resources. The world and the flesh, our residual ways of sinning, even when we know Him, even when we love Him, even when we're new creatures in Christ. And the devil, who is real, who is not mythic in the Scriptures, who is a real intelligent being. Those are our enemies. Think about the flesh. Think about this past week. Think about how all of us could say, man, just when I thought I was on top of that, that language or that anger or that way of handling people. Just when I thought that I really enjoyed the Bible and wasn't going to neglect it. Just when I thought that I was cultivating a life of prayer. Just when I thought that I was learning how to care about the poor. Just when I thought that I was getting on top of that, I show in the most overt ways that I don't get it. Yes, over the years I can see change because God is changing me. But just in the last week I see I do not possess the power to ultimately overcome the enemies of God's people, the world and my own flesh and the devil. And you know who the only one is who can? Is Christ Jesus himself. And here's what what I want to leave you with. One One of our members lost a grandparent this week. And it was a grandmother who had invested in this church member for years and years and years. And I got to speak with this person. And she said, when I, when I, a month or two ago, when I got to see my grandmother while she was still alive, and, and we really, I, I thought she was going to die sooner, and when I got to say goodbye to her, and we really got to say it, all the things she said to me that she wanted me to know I had already heard from her a thousand times. Nothing was new. And on her deathbed, kind of like almost with one toe or two in the Jordan, you might say, that she's still saying, I want you to know this. It's true. I'm right at the verge. It's still true. And she'd already heard it a thousand times. And guys, that is what we're to be with one another. Because it may be that the way you feel the world is through your own temptations. The way, well, surely you do, not maybe. We all do. The way you feel your flesh is through temptations. The way you feel the devil is through temptations. 
Or maybe it is the state of your family. Or maybe it is the state of your work or lack thereof. That the world is broken, it is shattered, and I messed up, and all the volunteerism and all the self-help books and all the renewed vows of self-discipline are not going to fix it. And you know what? You're right. You're right. And that would be a sad deal to stop there. But the gospel is that the star came. And on the cross, He dispatched the enemies. That is not yet fully manifested. But the star returns. We live between Advent number one and what? Advent number two. And when He comes again, He will usher in everything that He has already accomplished. The good news is not just that Jesus takes away individual sins, although He does that. But that if you believe, if you believe that what you will participate in is He will come in everything that's wrong with this world, everything that's wrong with the earth, everything that's wrong with Greenville, everything that's wrong with the way that we do money or art, everything that's wrong with literature or music or families, everything, all the ways that we misuse technology, all the ways I don't love God, all the ways I don't love you, everything will be made right because He's the King. And I would exhort you, if that is not what you believe, my, my plea out of love would be that you believe it. And that if you cannot bring yourself to believe, here's how powerful He is. You can look to Him and say, I don't know what to do. I don't even know how belief feels. Will you help me? Would you give me belief? He is so powerful and good, He can do even that. And you will participate in all the blessings of the new heavens and the new earth. Amen. Let's pray. Father, that is what all of us crave. It really is as if we're hearing about what every good story or every good movie or every good myth is nudging us toward and our heart wants it to be true. And, Father, Your Scriptures are saying it's true. But there are obstacles in our own heart. We have, we have stiff necks. And we live by sight. And we don't see Jesus physically walking around. And so we wonder, is this true? And we pray that through selfishness or distraction or busyness, our inability to help ourselves, that you would grant us a real sight by faith of the one who is the star, the scepter, who comes not just from Israel, but for Israel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.